1: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature, and we have a great example of that today. Um, I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi
0: Ganesanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night.
1: So as I recall, you're a Superman fan. I am
0: specifically a Christopher Reeve fan. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's... A, a Chinese, Chinese spy, spy balloon. Spy balloon. <laughs> it's a Chinese spy balloon, um, and at least
1: three I tell you other. I what Christopher Reeve would have taken down that Chinese spy balloon. We wouldn't have to be looking for it in the water.
0: No, um, and and not only that one, but like at least three other so far unidentified flying objects, and then also like that weird sphere that washed up on the beach, um, which not even a balloon anyway. So um, yeah, not Superman. The government has gone to some some what pains this, to... What
1: did you just say about a sphere that washed up on the beach? I have no idea what you're talking oh about. Oh my god, there was
0: a, there was like a weird orb that washed up on the beach and everyone was like, what is this? And Jeff Vandermeer tweeted about it, the joked that he was tweeting from inside it. Anyway, no one knew what it was. When
2: did I this I still happen? don't know what it
0: is. Like last week.
2: Oh, Um there are all that. of
0: these, all of these uncanny egg pictures. Anyway, so, okay. so... The US government, which we all love and trust deeply, has gone to some pains to say that none of these objects um, are related to extraterrestrial life.
1: Okay, so no ETs, but there have been four of these mysterious flying objects, one on February 4th, the others on February 10th, 11th, and 12th. So, what are we supposed to think about these objects? if we're a literary and political podcast. Well, lucky for us, the great
0: Ann Beatty mentioned the spy balloon in a recent LitHub essay about Donald Barthelme's short story,
1: the balloon. Proving that everything that you see in your social media feed or hear about on the English in the evening news has already been addressed in literature.
0: Yeah. And so we're vindicated. Our our whole existence has been vindicated. Um, And this piece is, fantastic. Um, Anne Beatty is known, of course, as a masterful fiction writer, but she has her first collection of essays out right now. And we're thrilled to have her joining us today to talk about that Lit Hub piece and also the new essay collection, More to Say, which was published just
1: recently. Ann Beatty has published 21 books and lives with her husband, the painter Lincoln Perry, in Maine. She is a recipient of the Penn Malamute Award for Achievement in the Short Story, the Ray Award for the Short Story, and a member of the Academy of Arts and Letters and of the Academy of Arts and Sciences. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We
0: really appreciate your joining us. I wonder if you would start the conversation off for us by reading a little bit from your Lit Hub essay um, in which you wonder what Bartholomew would have made of the Chinese spy balloon.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when we were all preoccupied with the balloon, the first thing that occurred to me was Donald Bartholomew's story. So that will just explain how Much Writers Live in Their Own Minds. <laughs> <That> <laughs> people might have been thinking about, oh, say the Chinese or something else. <laughs> but I was thinking about Donald Bartholomew. So I, I did um, write something and uh, here it is. Uh, this is a little bit into the piece. In 1966, Donald Barthelme published a story in The New Yorker called, appropriately enough, The Balloon. That was so long ago, he might as well have written My Afternoon with Dinosaurs at the Plaza. The balloon is an account that moves from the journalistic and aggressively portentous to the exhilaratingly poetic at story's end. His balloon covers a lot of territory. It contains insider references, timely and untimely buzzwords, and a sincere wish I'd say, but more about that later. Ultimately, it's not a send up, no pun intended, because it's not really satire. It's simultaneously tongue in cheek and achingly sincere. In it, a character narrates an unusual occurrence. Here's the first paragraph. The balloon, beginning at a point on 14th Street, the exact location of which I cannot reveal, expanded northward all one night while people were sleeping until it reached the park. This is pretty identifiable as a Barthelme beginning, it contains references to things seen and unseen That's the wonderful paradox he tries to navigate as a writer, so that the more we hear of the balloon, the more the small details or word choices also register, letting us know that the balloon, literalized, becomes a symbol for a state of mind, deprivation caused by love and loss. Reading it, New Yorkers would have immediately understood its terrain, even if unsure until story's end of its parameters. Naming certain streets in New York causes the same knee-jerk reaction as the little hammer used on our knee in the Babinski reflex test. Ah, okay, 14th Street, the dividing line, the line of demarcation after which you're, gasp, hurtling uptown. The park need not be named, outsiders call it Central Park, and that awkward syntax of which I cannot reveal, who is this self-important jerk? Well, our narrator's a poser presented by a writer who understands something about archness, that people claiming importance or power in this way become sadly ridiculous as they strain to sound important. One of the many delights of reading Barthelme is his flexibility, his ease with words and concepts that clash, his ability to paint the perfect still life in effect. He alludes to painting in the story, in a passage I'll quote later, by introducing an unexpected, sometimes rude detail whose inclusion makes you see through the pretense. Think, for example, of Magritte's portrait of a well-dressed man in a black hat whose portrait is interrupted by the presence of a floating green apple. In this particular story, our narrator has a mission. He's the somewhat silly, master of ceremonies, or at least the maitre d' of balloons. Won't those of us on the sidelines step this way to observe this, well, this inconvenient yet possibly important new presence in the city, a new reality that might shake things up as the writer always hopes, defamiliarize our world so that we put it back together a little differently. It provides us with a new landscape.
1: Thank you very much. Um yeah, I'm a huge Bartholomew fan and I, I loved that connection when I when we saw your essay. I had not thought of it, but I was very I was immediately taken with it. Uh, and the way and we can talk some about the, the way that the spy balloon reminds me of the way that people people the way people reacted to the spy balloon reminds me of the way people react to the balloon in the story by Bartholomew by speculating about it, by developing theories about it, by having news. You know, there's all kinds of interesting parallels there. But also it's a spy balloon and 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 you refer to this story as barthelme spying on himself and i wondered if you could talk about that a little bit
2: yeah i guess so um i mean i think maybe uh the term now that would be used this story was written in i believe 1966 quite a while ago uh i was this, uh, uh, one
1: year from being born that wow. happened wow Well, I'm the the old guy on this show.
2: (laughs) I see. Well, I'm definitely the old old girl you're interviewing. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) Um, Well, I I mean, what should I say about that? I I think that what I was trying to talk about when I was talking about what Barthelme was doing and how he defamiliarizes the world has a lot to do with his kind of quixotic sense, his kind of sense of humor and his kind of... um, Uh, ability to recontextualize things so that automatically it's as though two images are superimposed. So we have the balloon of our imagination, which is probably some prototypical balloon, some generic balloon, you know, of our childhood or whatever. And then we have a different attitude that we have toward balloons when we're adults. And then we have a still different attitude when we find out that there's something mysterious that is attributed to China and is a supposedly a spy balloon. And this would have been right up his alley. I mean, he would have, yeah. actually, he would have been out in the street corner, handing out copies of the story. I mean, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's it is yeah. It's interesting to me because it seems like balloons as objects are kind of on this fulcrum between fear and delight, in almost the same way that spying is. I think probably you know the first thing I would have read about spying as a kid was probably Harriet the Spy, um, right? And it's so.
2: I think what it does a little bit is. It is just what you're saying. I mean, I think it makes it a little bit juvenile, you know? I mean, we understand this is a story in The New Yorker by someone who's quite erudite, who knows, you know, so many fields other than just the field of literature. But he's, he's both knowing those fields at the same time that he's mocking them. So he's playing on all those emotions we could potentially have. The fact that we like balloons, the fact that we're afraid we'll always lose them, you know, but that would of course mean that it would be a size of something we might lose lose this balloon is absolutely enormous as as describes it in the story there is truly no getting around this balloon so to speak
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the other thing that I, I remember about that story, and he, he has a really great essay uh, called On Not Knowing that I teach sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's also uh, an, uh, an essay about art commentary and about the, his idea of trying to make art that wasn't easily digestible, that couldn't easily be described or, you know, given meaning to, like finding to try to create art that resisted easy interpretation. And the balloon seems to be like that um so anyway that's my that was the other thing that i think about that story i don't know how that re- reconnects to the chinese spy balloon except that uh people find it interesting because it's toy-like too because it's goofy that the chinese would send this balloon over to look at it's like what could it possibly be doing
2: right exactly everybody thought that was simply incredible but how interesting that so many years ago barthelme conjured up something that you know, when people were reading it as a piece of fiction, which is how it was published, of course, initially in The New Yorker, I mean, I'm sure it provoked a lot of re- responses that people sort of censored themselves about, too, like, oh, this must be important. He's very intelligent. We're reading yet another story about Donald Barthelme, who knows the world of art, the world of literature, certainly the world of New York itself very, very well. You know, they what I said was true. I mean, it's a buzzword. If you say in New Yorkers say, I never go above 14th Street, and some of them aren't kidding. I mean, that's the line of demarcation between the village and going uptown, which is a totally different uh, modus operandi.
0: So um, speaking about um, writing about art uh, and writing about these, I don't know, kind of objects and visuals that teeter in these, um, I don't know, if not exactly an uncanny valley, but sort of something something like a messier a messier world of interpretation. Your whole essay collection, more to say, examines the work of other writers and artists, and the book is described as essays and appreciations, and that caught my eye because some of the pieces are reviews, but you also write in some places about the limitations of that form. Whitney was just talking about the difficulty of describing things, things that resist that, which seem to be the things that you appreciate the most. So I'm, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you think a good review can do, what its limits are, and why you might why you turn to appreciations and maybe their possibilities in addition.
2: I was kind of happy when I came up with just wearing my heart on my sleeve and saying it's appreciations. You know, obviously I in a book like this, I have uh, an advantage that somebody who is a, a staff writer doing, let's say, book reviews in particular, or covering the arts or whatever, doesn't have because almost always these weren't, I mean, these were assignments I either could have turned down or they were self-generated. I mean, people, you know, wanted me to write about what I wanted to write about. Well, obviously, automatically, that's an advantage. So that's why the appreciations really were there. I mean, had I not appreciated them, I wouldn't have done it, you know. Um, But you ask a good question about what the limitations are. And you'll talk to anybody doing what I'm doing. I'm primarily a fiction writer, not a nonfiction writer. You'll talk to anybody who will, you know, grumble now about how, well, the audience doesn't quite get me. You know, the audience doesn't understand my illusions anymore, or this isn't popular anymore. And what I have to say about that in part is I know if Barthelme was still alive, he would love to satirize that too. He'd make fun of us for condescending and making fun. In other words, that isn't unilaterally true. There are plenty of people out there who would understand every illusion in Barthelme's story, many of which I may have truly missed. And certainly plenty of people out there who would understand the way that I structure these essays. But for me, it was really just close looking, I have to say. And it was a wonderful opportunity to stop whatever else I was doing. Uh, maybe just wasting my time even and, you know, put myself in a frame of mind that first of all, I tried very much to relate to uh, not the biography of the artist, but kind of the world of the artist, what I thought the artist was trying to do. And, you know, that tended to um, make me have the kind of interpretations that I came up with.
1: So the book, uh, which I really enjoyed and um uh, and, and so many writers that I really care about, you're writing about. So I thought that was, you know, that was extremely pleasurable. Speaking of, among them, Alice Munro. Um, and in your essay, Alice Munro's Amazingly Ordinary World, you talk about how Munro defamiliarizes, a word you used just a little bit a bit ago with Bartholomew as well, ordinary life in her book, Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage, which is also a book that I love. Um, I was struck by that word, defamiliarization, defamiliarization. Um, and why is that so important to you? And why? What makes Monroe's style of defamiliarization so distinctive?
2: Well, I must admit that I'm a little loosey-goosey with that with that concept. I mean, sometimes what. What is conventionally meant by defamiliarization isn't so highfalutin that it needs that word. It's merely that something that is well known already or has been many times seen is a way to represent that thing, you know, mm-hmm. to 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 make it glow or something for the reader or for the viewer or whatever. And that's not that easy to do. Barthelme, of course, was an absolute master of it, and that was at the core of everything he was trying to do. Uh, but for defamiliarization, as I'm throwing around the term, really has to do with seeing the ordinary in a new light. And that's because the person who wrote the piece uh, has recontextualized it, has, has moved it from where we would expect to see it. Here's a great example. My husband and I do live in Maine in the summer, and there used to be until the, the end of last summer, a summer th- playhouse called Hackmatack Theater in a little town called North Berwick, Maine. And we went there once to see a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. And little did we know that the introduction to this was going to be, as the music came up, Muppets, puppets, who were Muppets coming up through the floorboards and doing do wop do wop do wop And explaining you know, these famous, well, stating these famous li- li- you know, lines from Shakespeare, it was hilarious. I mean, it, it certainly didn't hurt Shakespeare. It wasn't attempting to be Shakespeare per se. It didn't, it wasn't meant to be derisive. It, it was kind of meant to be catchy, you know? And so defamiliarization I think is often just simply used that way. It's a, it's a new way to invite people into the ordinary, I would say.
0: I really like that. Adaptation is defamiliarization, of course. Um I don't uh-huh. think I would I wouldn't have thought to apply that word, but that's absolutely what it is. And um in a household of uh ardent muppet fans I wish I'd been.
2: <laughs> we weren't not muppet fans. We were pretty surprised at first.
0: <laughs> I want to pivot to another essay about a well-known writer, Updike, um because that piece made me think in a new way about his work, and I wonder if I could ask you to read a paragraph from that essay.
2: Yeah, sure. Um I was actually very flattered. I, I read this for the first annual meeting of the John Updike Society. So, you know, I felt that people would know his work so well. And I guess I was trying to defamiliarize <laughs> get word keeps coming up, up uh, Updike a little bit by uh, talking about something, talking about his backgrounds, basically, talking about the natural world and how that actually comes, you know, toward. toward the front when you're reading an Updike story had I not been asked to do this this was not an opinion I formerly held about Updike but boy when I realized that it was there it actually I used to teach also it it was very interesting how much it helped me with my teaching so um, the Updike is let's see um It is well known that Updike began as a visual artist, though language became his medium. His work is highly visual, something that's usually implied, I think, by calling a thing elegant. Nature is the foreground, but he insists that we look at it instead of tracking words on a page, trying to understand the character and his or her story. We all know that the sight of an oak tree in autumn can make our little accomplishments pale in comparison, and of course Updike sometimes evokes such images to temper or to undercut his character's getting and spending. Writing that is hermetically sealed runs the risk of seeming contrived. Characters get to speak without the annoyance of the phone ringing, without a bird flying into a window. They get to speak, as we do not, to a uh, conversational partner who is not distracted and who is allowed to give his or her undivided attention. That oak tree is a brass band once you catch sight of it. Everything that happens simultaneously or thereafter is tinged by the context it provides. It's otherness, it's immediacy, it's inevitability. Another quality of elegance is judiciousness. His eye doesn't race through the forest, but locate some detail or single entity to focus on in the natural world, and usually in a sentence or with a brief allusion, sweeps his writerly paintbrush to pair it with his character. That
0: is so amazing. I just hadn't thought of Updike as putting nature in the foreground, and of course, I mean, you totally and. And I was completely convinced by this essay. and It just made me. Um, and I think for me, he was really formative because it was sort of like the first grown-up writer. I I think it was like the first grown-up book I read. Um, you know, you get assigned it in high so school. you liked the like the
1: sex scenes? I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly think. Um, you know, I think I was. I was must have been in A P English or something like that, and they assign you Updike, and you're a little bit like, "Am I? I'm allowed to read this? This is very. I don't know. This is this is the most complex thing I've I've oh. had in school yet. And
2: and. Oh very provocative at the time too, not just if you were a school child either. I mean, a lot of people were going out looking at the sex scenes and up like in couples and other such novels. Yeah, sure.
0: This wasn't what I meant, but I can't deny that that's also true. Um, but, you know, I, I hadn't remembered until I was reading this essay that, he, of course, he began his career as a visual artist and you get so nicely at that, that phrase, writerly paintbrush, and you talk about how he uses that to pair nature with character and you also just mentioned that this helped you a lot with your teaching. And I wonder if you can talk about that, like a, a little bit of, yeah.
1: Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing I, I used to try to do was to, well, I taught both literature and creative writing. Frankly, I like teaching literature better because look at what I got to read all the time, all the time. Uh, and I, again, I just took into the classroom what I was really, you know, impressed by sometimes things I didn't completely understand so that I could toss it around and, um, get informed, get better informed about these things. But, um, when I, when I was, Teaching, I mean, I wasn't directly thinking about my own writing and what exactly I could take away from the classroom. But one of the things I know all of my students Former students, perhaps with an eye roll, would have said is that I was always trying to get them to acknowledge that whatever they were writing or whatever we were reading, if it was a literature course, was not not hermetically sealed. It, It had certain, it was artifice. It was crafted by someone, it was made. And this was not the thing itself. And yet the writer's obligation always is to make it as real, if not more real, than the thing itself, because otherwise people can be stunned by ordinary life every single second you know but I I realized that my students were in a way so um in a way wary of doing anything that would derail them when they were writing the stories that they'd forget to say that in a 10-page story sitting in somebody's living room the telephone never rang nobody ever delivered food there wasn't a cat that walked across the floor they didn't dare do that they were just trying to get across what they wanted to get across and I think I, I I think Updike made it fun not fun as in a game or anything like that but I think that that going back and forth that I know that secret wink of I know there's a secret there's another world out there and we we just happen to be contemplating things with my elegant prose right here which heaven knows he he really did write in the best sense, really elegant, elegant prose. And like Bartholomew was just so well read, so hugely well informed. But it's, it's, it made me think about the opening up of stories and the way that Updike did it so subtly that it went by me if I had not really had the opportunity to sit and analyze something in a new way, because I don't usually give talks or speeches or whatever that's very different from the dynamic of the classroom but i started to realize everywhere it was all over updike that you know you're always going back and forth between the larger world the interior world which is used no differently than a stage set but he found the perfect language to link all those things too so it seems to be all writing but the writing is elusive it's to visual images that's what he does
1: one of the one of the things that I always think about right in this exact vein, and this may connect to the defamiliarization idea that we were talking about earlier, is when Updike is really good at describing something that I have seen a million times but have never seen described before. And that happens to me when I'm reading your work as well, Anne. I, I mean, I think that this is something that good writers, uh, you know, great writers can do. And I remember there's an essay by John Updike called Spring Rain that's from like a New Yorker, like in that mid-60s time. And it just describes a rainstorm like in in the, in the street out outside the New Yorker offices, but he has a million of those kinds of images. One of them I remember is like he talks about the liver spots on the side of a brick building. And you know how when it rains, like a certain part of the brick gets wet and some other part doesn't. and I'm like, I've seen that a million times, but I've never seen anyone describe that before and that's like,
2: Perfect that's the painterly example. stuff
1: that you're talking about I yeah think.
2: it really is and he really that came naturally to him if, if you can he believe was it. use the wow. all-time
1: pro i think yeah. at that yeah he really um was. and i think it's you know it, it's fitting also that this book contains um essays about visual artists so i thought i really liked that pairing and i appreciated that and i am less well versed there so i learned a lot uh in, in that part of the book um and the first essay is about uh, your husband lincoln perry who's an artist uh, the piece was commissioned to accompany some of his paintings of Charlottesville, where you lived when you taught at the University of Virginia. Can you talk about what it's like to write that essay about someone you know very well?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you can imagine you might be very inhibited writing about your husband. I mean, <laughs> what if he doesn't like it? Right. Uh, but again, even though I knew at some level, I don't until writing that, I don't think that I had really articulated to myself some of the some of the things that I came up with when I really um, started thinking about certain qualities that Lincoln had personally and how those qualities seemed rooted sometimes in in what his eye was attracted to and how he presented things. He does many multi-panel paintings. And I think our sensibility is somewhat similar in that I don't believe there's any one story. And sometimes within my work itself, there's a lot of doubt cast or there's ambiguity. And that's because from other perspectives, I'm not writing the inevitable story, I'm writing a story. And similarly doing multi-panel paintings that take uh, different views of, you know, the same thing, uh, shows a way of looking at the world and saying, well, look at this, I've made it very credible, haven't I? Well, but what if you move around to the side? Did you ever see that before, you know, so.
1: We we forgot, we should have had him come in here and answer and tell us what he thought about it. He's right on the other side of that door, I believe that I can see. So we're not gonna actually make him do that.
0: Uh, but, um, it is very cool. I mean, you know, many of you know, many of the people that you wrote about, which is kind of gives, I feel like a different window into the criticism. Um, and one of my favorite essays in here is about the photographer, John Loengard. And in that essay, you write about a photograph of a panda on a bicycle, which is maybe my favorite visual of the whole book. And, and that photograph is, is in the beginning of the book. And it's the only visual, um, in the whole thing, and and you describe Lonegard's photographs as literary, and him working like a novelist, and offering, yeah, like which I thought was so great, offering narrative but resisting linearity, and. I'd love to hear you talk about how his work has influenced your writing and understanding of narrative, because those descriptions were so interesting.
2: I'd love to flatter myself and say that in some way it influenced me. I think it supported me and it inspired me. I think it inspired me more than anything else. And then it's a little harder to track that through something directly, you know, than um, than to say, I, I learned from his working method this, that, and the other thing. I did learn some things from his working method, though, because it was another, uh, uh, you know, case where I I knew that I came to know the photographer. I, I knew his work before I ever met John Loengard. I did meet Loengard. I did, you know, become even more interested in his work. And uh, he was for a long time, if people might not know this, the picture editor of Life Magazine. But he was himself just one of the most magnificent photo- photographers, you know ever. I mean, he's just fabulous. He said something that I liked very much that I do think kind of in a way is similar to something that I did in my own work. So maybe I just heaved a sigh of relief when I heard it. But uh, in an introduction that he wrote to one of his own books, he said something to the effect of, um, I often, yes, you know, times have changed. I often photograph in color and that makes things look more real to people. But I also love most of all to photograph in black and white. And he makes this distinction because that makes it more convincing. And I really think that's true. I mean, I'm really trying to do my stories in black and white. I'm not trying to do them in technicolor. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as a working method, but it certainly isn't mine. That's so interesting. I think so too about Lohengard. I mean, not about me necessarily, but he was just so smart and, you know, his reflexes were so keen. I I would be hard pressed to think there was any analogy because he was working with camera, you know, complex cameras. He was out there with his Leica and, you know, natural light or lighting that had been set up and other portraits he did or other kind of shots that he did but you can't miss anything you miss it for all time any photographer will tell you that you have one second this is never analogous to what a writer does i mean i could have gone over every essay i wrote in that book a hundred times if i wanted to you know what i mean it's a tremendous advantage but not so for photographers. So when, when you look at that thing that they've gotten, you really do think not that it captures something to limit it or to define that thing, but that person must have really cared to get that in one second. You don't always know how much writers care. They can be very eloquent. They can be extraordinarily good. But I think it's sometimes nice to know the other thing, how much, you know, how, how much in sync with the material they are.
0: I feel so troubled by, like, in general, when I write fiction, of course, and I think for so many people, time is the question. And there is that great passage where you describe, like, Loengard his reflexes. Um, And, yeah, and I don't know, for, yeah, for a moment you had me realizing how easy I had it um, as someone who can kind of go back and endlessly revise myself. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes yes that's true what can i say um you know but other things i learned from low too were i mean it's a little hard to describe i guess the visual image but just to quickly say yes there it is he was sent on assignment i believe i travel in leisure magazine and he was supposed to photograph whatever he wanted you know at the shanghai circus and off he went and here was a giant panda coming toward him on a bicycle or a unicycle or whatever it was called. And he got it just at the moment where the bear, who can't be very expressive the way we can with our faces, certainly, if you conjure up a giant panda, is turning just, you know, just like this, as though they might, he might crash into the photographer or leave the picture or something like that. And that instant recognition the viewer has of you know, how quickly that moment could be something else, or how much speed is involved in that moment, is tremendously interesting to me and next to impossible, at least for me, to mimic in any way with words because words pile up. And when they do, time stops artificially and for too long. But with Loengard, he got it like that. And it's also wonderful that's in the book, too, because he. John died fairly recently, and the Lowengard estate was so generous about letting Godin, who is the publisher, publish that, uh, publish that image of, of his photograph. You know, they, they were incredibly nice about that. I personally wish it had been on the cover, but what can you do? My mug is.
1: <laughs> I have to go back to the part where you said that you think about your work being in black and white. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you know, black and white is much more about contrast and depth of field is handled very differently in black and white from color photographs. I mean, just technically, there are a lot of different ways of working if you're working with one kind of, let's say, film versus another. But I I mean, what I like personally, I, I don't want to stretch the analogy too far. I don't want to say something that'll sound like I'm putting myself down, but it's fine with me if, if the audience does a lot of the work of putting together the photograph so in other mm-hmm. words if you see something black and white you're going to imagine something if it's a field of flowers you're going to imagine something even if it's just your own projection that the flowers are yellow or because you know you know it's a garden in england the roses are pink or something like that you don't you can have the color pink but you cannot have the color pink i like to have things that are elusive enough in my story that i'm not always saying the pink roses i'm saying it's england and the roses because then the reader can make it their roses, and that can only help the story, unless there's some huge reason not to, you know, unless you need to yeah, give more, more more guidance to the I just the was reader.
1: curious, so that was that was an interesting connection, thank you for explaining that. Um, yeah. The essays in this collection aren't organized chronologically, I noticed, and the earliest essay about, is it Richard Rue, is that the right way to say that name? You
2: know, I think so. I, I met him okay. so many years ago. I talked to him. We're going to guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a essay about yes. Richard Rue's sculpture appeared in The New Yorker as a talk of the town piece in 1982. Yeah. And the most recent on Elizabeth Spencer's The Runaways was published in Narrative Magazine just last year. So I was trying to think about, you know, you've had a long career, as you said, you're most in, we know, mostly known for as a fiction writer. But you have been writing journalism all along, as you say, in the in the introduction. Um as you were putting together uh, the selections for this book, how did you see your, your nonfiction change over the time that you were been writing it? Um, and which preoccupations stayed the same?
2: Hmm. I probably am not the best one to, to speak yeah. to that, oddly. I'm not trying to avoid the question. I mean, certainly my sensibility would have been one thing when I was 30 years old. That's how old I was when I wrote about Richard Rue. And then having spent now 35 years married to an artist, a, a painter, a sculptor, certainly <laughs> I, I know a heck of a lot more than I knew then. So if I'm looking at visual images now, I have, I hope, a much more trained eye. I have, I'm a different person. I mean, everybody, let's hope, evolves somewhat, uh, and I can bring different skill sets to the different kinds of writing. Uh, But it would never have occurred to me that this might be valuable to, uh, you know, organize this book chronologically. I had a book that came out in 2010 that was called The New Yorker Stories, and I believe it was, at that point, 48 stories, I think I'm right, uh, everything I'd had in The New Yorker, and it seemed that a reader might want very well to follow me when I was 25 years old into the present day. You know, I can see that you would, that, that the stories would speak for themselves in terms of how they were, uh, on what trajectory they were moving. But I don't think I was ever moving on a trajectory, particularly with the nonfiction, because again, as I said earlier, or tried to say earlier, uh, I was really trying to get on the wavelength of these particular artists. And I had the advantage of being able to find artists I could get on the wavelength of, you know, so.
0: You also mentioned in your introduction to the book that you don't look back at past work, but you did for this.
2: Yeah. And...
0: Yeah, I wonder, yeah. I I am never really sure
2: if it's a good habit or not to look at <laughs> past work. I'll be honest with you. The essay on Updike replaced the only essay that I pulled after, you know, it was about to go into galleys. I just could never be, be satisfied with, and I could have hugely rewritten it. That seems so unfair as to be not worth my time at, at this point when there were other things that I might turn to, but I had no memory of what I had, you know, read aloud many, many years before. And had I not been, in my house in Maine, which is not, as a matter of fact, where I'm talking to you tonight, uh, and been able to pull the one published uh, book from the conference out and look at it again, I wouldn't have known if, if I thought that was a good essay or a bad essay. I hadn't looked at it in so many years. It was quite a number of years old. So when I looked at it and thought, oh, it's certainly better than the other one, I pulled the other one and said to the editor, Josh Bodwell, I just, I don't want to make the, try to make the other one better. It's not good enough. What about this piece on Updike? And fortunately, he really liked the piece on Updike. I mean, the
0: piece on Updike is
2: great. Um, Oh, thank you. Well, I didn't remember
0: that. (laughs) But I'm, I'm fascinated. So you contemplated revising the other one.
2: Yeah. I did try to revise it and everything just made it worse. I mean, it just it just wasn't good enough. Sometimes that's the way it goes. I did have a lot of things, you know, that I could have picked between. And um, while I truly, it was, it was my pick. Uh, it was my pick the first time around and I picked an essay that really wasn't good enough. And I think Josh believed that and, you know, politely let me put in the updike instead. Um, but again, I don't, I don't mean to put it down because it's earlier work, but I think that generally what I could say about some of these pieces are that, um, I didn't have as much to compare them to when I was writing them. And I was very young, as I do now, because I've been to many museums. I've had many discussions with my husband. I even I have more artwork. I don't have any money then. I have more artwork hung in my house, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's more my world now. I'm I'm a little more at ease in it than I was when I started writing. And if you ask me honestly, I mean, yeah, there are a few little nervous ticks about, you know, things that I was tentative about. Uh, And I can't remember if I, how many of those I edited out, you know, the word perhaps is of course very overused, or I realized when I was writing this, the number of times I, I couldn't think what really I wanted to say. So I talked about the author's sense of, I mean, sorry, the, the painters, let's say or photographers sensibility, it's not a misuse, but when you put it all together, you think, well, she's, she's obsessed with the word sensibility. I mean, what really is that? Can't she do a little harder work, but now I would try to do that harder work.
0: It's helpful to hear you talk about editing yourself and about looking back at work when I just think about, you know, if I run a find on my own work. Um, the manuscript inevitably lights up with the words, so igniting all over the place. Um, and it's a
2: surprise, right? You're not self-conscious about it until no. you do a check and you find out something like that. I actually put together a collection of short stories many years ago. I don't even remember which one, but the copy editor—it was still hand copy edited. You know, in those days, it was absolutely wonderful. And the, and I kept t- having my characters take Excedrin, and finally, after about the fourth, you know, story in which somebody reaches for the bottle of Excedrin, it was a little note in the in the in the margin and said, uh, "Please use generic. Uh, at least sometimes people will think you are you know in the employ of this company, <laughs> which actually was only half joking. I mean, yes, they probably would. You know,
0: it's really funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I think our listeners are going to." be so grateful to hear about all of this from the reviewing to the the editing yourself to this huge span of work um this wonderful experience of getting to kind of close read and close look at art with you which is the the joyous experience of this book so we really appreciate your joining us and we want to encourage our listeners to go pick up more to say which is out now thanks again thank you
1: that's it for the fiction Nonfiction podcast this podcast is produced by ann knigendorf our theme music is composed by travis workman you can subscribe to us by typing fiction-slash-non-slash-fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!